Real Men Feel with Andy Grant encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been told, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but all men can benefit from. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now let's get to it. Hello and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant. You know, uh, a couple months ago, I was scouring the internet putting together the Real Men Feel Guide to Friendship, which you can download at realmenfeel.org slash gift. And this puts you on our newsletter to get show updates as well. And again, that's realmenfeel.org slash gift. And this is a, uh, a collection of virtual and physical places that men can make more male friends. Because I hear that's a common thing, um, that, that guys don't know where to find new guys to hang out with, to, to share with. And I came across a site, everyman.com, and I saw Owen Marcus's picture. And I had this strange deja vu. And it was because <laughs> two years ago, Owen was on the show. It was back on episode 88. But I decided that surely plenty has changed in two years for, for me to forget that he'd been on the show and to see what's up with Everman. So I'm very glad and excited to welcome back, welcome back, Owen Marcus. He has explored and developed programs that bring together mindfulness, somatic psychotherapy, and the science of emotional physiology for 40 years. His men's group and this alternative model were the focus of the documentary about men. His book, Grow Up, A Man's Guide to Masculine Emotional Intelligence, lays out how to complete the nine stages of emotional maturation for boys and men. He is the director of education at Everyman, and he created that with some co-founders, and it's using emotions and physiology as tools to create fulfilling relationships and purposeful lives. That's a lot. Welcome to the show. It's great to see you again. Thank you, Andy. Great to be here. You pretty much just laid out the show right there. (laughs) Yeah, you. I mean, you. So you, you've you've done a lot. It, it felt like two years ago, every man was just kind of getting started. I noticed it's, it's even a, become a different domain. So have you? Has this really grown and become more of what you're up to? Yeah, this is 100 percent of what I do. I mean, I still do some coaching on off the side, but this is my main focus. And um, as you can imagine, yeah, we were all live events, and then we started getting into virtual stuff. Then COVID happened. We went 100% virtual. We have a membership now, and we support guys in virtual groups, which are actually working way better than I would have thought. Oh, really? Oh, so so then what, what about being virtual has surprised you? Well, you know, I've been doing men's groups for a few decades, and, you know, and as you know, I created our own, my own unique model, which became every man's model. So, you know, we really take guys a lot deeper uh, than they normally would go in other settings. And so they get powerful changes and amazing things. The interactions happen in these live groups. So I go, well, virtual, well, I mean, that's just going to be sort of superficial. What I'm finding is that guys really connect. So we do these global calls every Tuesday night. And so you literally get guys from all over the world. And some of them, none, no experience with any of this stuff, maybe very little or virtual, they show up and we put them in a breakout group with a few other guys and they come back and they're blown away because just connecting even virtually to a man in an authentic way is so unique and new that it just opens up another set of possibilities. And then we, we've been doing it long enough in the virtual world that we have these ongoing groups and these guys are giving us this feedback, like for an hour and a half, once a week, you know, these say six guys get together and they're a tight group and they might be literally from all over the world. They pick a time of the day and they're there. During the pandemic, I got into a, a, a mankind project group um, for myself. Cause like, boy, I, I need some support. I want to just be able to share. And 
from from my perspective, it seems that being virtual almost lets more of your guard down. Like there's still that that separation of of space makes you can because you're, you're at home maybe you feel a little safer to 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 share more than you would if especially in like a first in person meeting is 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 that at all? Resonate? I think you're right. I think there's some upsides and downsides. And another upside is it's really convenient. You don't have to go anyplace. Uh, and a lot of these guys wanted to do groups, but they were in small towns that couldn't get enough guys. And so now it takes that away and it takes the time thing away, so they can pretty much do it anytime, any place they want. And you're right. For a lot of guys, they feel safer in their own house. Now, some guys, because you're the family, whatever, it might be a little harder because they can't get the privacy, but they seem to find a way to do it. Some guys will go out in their car, put headphones on or whatever. Uh, so it varies. Uh, but it, we're finding that we're just able to appeal to many more guys than we ever could before. Cool. So COVID seems to be having a positive impact on every man. What are you seeing? What are you hearing from guys about how the pandemic is affecting them individually? Well, the research shows shows this that first guys tend to be isolated, particularly as they get older. And then with COVID, we all know they're more isolated. Uh, you know, that slowly started changing a little. Now we're going back into the, the winter and that's probably going to produce more isolation. So this is a great way to to not be so isolated and feel connected in an authentic way with other men. So that has been a real driver for guys that probably wouldn't have done it before. Now they have to. And I also do couple trainings with my partners, a couple therapists, and, and we're finding that, um, you know, these couples are struggling because before they had a lot of diversions and now yet there's no escape. So they're literally forced to deal with their relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have personal experience with that as well. Um, I'm coming up on my 23rd anniversary and in this pandemic, my wife and I sought out a marriage counselor because yeah, it was just, she, she still goes to work. She works at a hospital. So she physically goes there and, and I don't see, you know, another human in real life except for her. And, and it's, 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 uh, it, it, it's takes some toll. It, it changes things. It it's interesting. Yeah, it does. It does. And, and we get in to the whole stress in terms of the, the, the science of it, but really, you know, how do we, support men in that stress response so that they they don't go to more and more disconnection and withdraw from that relationship and you know supporting these guys and sort of teaching them within their groups or these other experiences we have with every man to connect with themselves so they really can go connect with their partners and their family in ways that maybe they weren't even doing before covid hmm. What got you first involved in men's work? Was was it as a coach? Was it as a professional? Or were you a, a client and wanting, wanting some personal growth of your own to begin with? Sort of all that. Um, I got involved in mid-90s. I had a medical clinic down in uh, Scottsdale. And I was sort of downsizing that. I knew I needed to do something else to really improve my relationships uh, with women. And I thought, well, maybe I'd work with men. Oh, I don't want to work with men. And that was a sign that, oh, maybe I should. <laughs> so I... <laughs> I, you know, I did a training. I started a group in my clinic. It was mediocre. Ended up moving to Northern California for a year. Helped start a new group there. And that was great. I go, okay, this is what I want. Tried a few groups here in Idaho. Didn't work. And then 16 years ago, I redesigned the model using everything I learned um, in somatic psychotherapy, physiology, trauma work, to really work with guys. Not, not so much on a mental level, but a more on a physiological, emotional level, sort of bottom up rather than top down. And I found that a couple of things. One, it worked, but guys really like that. Guys like when it's more physical. Mm -hmm. You know, we're physical. We're, we, we default to the mental, but what gets these guys so engaged that we really are working with that body and emotional interface. 
Hmm. So that's the the emotional physiology that that so much of your work is on. Can can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So we all know at least the the parameters of that. So we know what stress is. We know that you know stress is basically a survival response. So in survival, we generally think of we got two things we do: fight or flight. You know, we either you know go after, pursue, attack, or we run away. Well, there's a third option that more and more people are becoming aware of, which is a freeze response. So when, they, when a mammal can't run or fight, they go into shock. They mimic death, and hopefully the predator leaves, and they literally, literally shake that off, and the body just shakes, and they, they reset, and they're fine. But what happens with PTSD, we never get to shake it off. So we stay in that frozen state, which is psychologically a state of disassociation. We get disconnected. And it could be a lot of what I call micro traumas or stress, or it could you know, be a major trauma. And so we create that model for guys. And then we use you know, our form of sort of somatic mindfulness to keep the guy aware of his body and his physiological response. So for, I was one of them. For a lot of guys in the beginning, it's a lot easier to be aware of our bodies than our emotions. And it's really that physiology that takes us out before our emotions take us out. Because when, when we start to go into to that survival response, even though logically we don't feel threatened, but subjectively or internally we are having that survival response, we, we immediately disconnect and we're either going to go into one of those three. We're going to fight. We're going to like fight with our partner. We're going to withdraw or run away, or we're going to sort of freeze or shut out, which is going to feel like a runaway. And, and when in a relationship, then that triggers our partners because on a subliminal level or unconscious level, they feel us checking out. So that makes them feel unsafe. And so they're going to do one of those three things. And then the whole spiral sort of just continues to perpetuate. And then you got a problem where one, we explain it, but more than that, we, we help that man's physiology and emotion sort of back them out of that place and develop skills and more resiliency. So when something happens, they don't go into that survival response. Or if they do, they know they do. And they go, oh, okay, I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to slow down. I'm going to feel what I feel. And to the best of my ability, I'm going to be vulnerable or reach out and try to connect to this person. Hmm. You know, it's, I've, I've never, I've certainly heard of animals in nature, you know, mimicking death to survive. I've never kind of heard that or thought about that in relation to, to men. So is part of checking out, is shutting down, is, is part of that mimicking our, our death? Yeah, well, yeah. And so all mammals are hardwired when we can't run, we can't fight, we'll, we'll sort of go into that shock phase. And so the predator looks at us and we look like we're dead. Our breathing shuts down. We're not moving. Uh, and so the predator, you know, leaves and comes back and says, well, you know, I'm not real hungry now. I'll come back for my meal or bring my family and we'll have a feast. Hmm. Well, five minutes later, you, like if you're, you know, I live in the woods of North Idaho and if the mountain lion takes the deer down, you know, and then the mountain lion leaves about five minutes later, the deer's going to stand up and what you will see, and there's YouTube videos on this of mammals, they literally shake. They discharge that stored up fight or flight response. They drain it off. And then that's the reset. So when you do that, you don't have any PTSD. Mm -hmm. The post-traumatic stress disorder is when your physiology, let alone your emotions, but really your physiology doesn't have a chance to sort of go through that cycle of discharge. Mm -hmm. And so we have decades of that cycle building up one drop at a time. And then your wife looks at you the wrong way on a bad day and boom, 
you're in that survival response. Is the predator in men's lives that, you know, being judged as weak or seeming vulnerable or, or anything that challenges our view of masculinity, is that what we see as the predator that makes us shut well, down? Well, that and our, and our partners or the guy that drives by, you know, and you're driving and, and he cuts you off. Uh, it, it's the, you know, media knows this. I mean, it's, it's all that news that we see that gets us all riled up. Uh, it could be anything. Okay. I mean, so once we've had a history, it doesn't take much to re-trigger it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Hmm. And then the uh, getting in touch with the body. If, if, if you're a man that really hasn't done much with, with identifying your emotions and feelings. So the easiest way is to then get in touch with your body. So it might be just as, as, as simple of a start as noticing where, where you're tense or where you're sore. Is that kind of the entry exactly. way where, where you're tightening up? So you're sitting there with your wife and, you know, yeah, maybe you don't know what's happening emotionally, but you realize you're starting to grip your hands, you're gripping your jaw, your heart rate's going up, uh, you feel, your face feels flushed. Uh, and then you go, well, you know, I'm getting angry. Or, or you know, you're getting itching, you're, you're moving around, you're sort of looking at the door, or you're looking at your watch and going, okay, when can I leave? Or you're just checking out and you're, you know, you're thinking about, you know, the baseball game you just watched. So it's really... Uh... For, for, for humans, <laughs> and any stress is treated like a predator, and exactly. we just keep storing it and storing it if we don't learn how to get uh, shake it off, as you said. Exactly. And, and you know, the ability to shake it off is as instinctual as our ability to, you know, to go into the survival response. Mm-hmm. Now, here's one of the little bonuses, is, and the research supports this, too. Connection, secu- as a therapist would call secure attachment, you know, real connection down-regulates the stress response. So they've done research where, you know, you and your wife have a good relationship. You're experiencing pain like they put your arm in something really cold. So it's not hurting you, but it's painful. When, and then she comes by and touches you, your pain goes down. Hmm. And so secure connections will downregulate a stress response. Now, insecure, you know, negative connections or relationships will escalate it. And it only makes sense that if in any situation, if, if I feel like people have my back, I'm not as stressed. I'm not as worried or concerned. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we work with uh, special forces and you know, other you know, elite units. And that's what they, you know, that's what they find. And, and, and it's real critical that in their teams that every man trusts every other man. And if they don't, the guy's off the team because that you, you could say that's one form of secure attachment. Because they can't be worried about watching their back. Yeah, you have to have ultimate trust in in, in your brothers. Right. Yeah. Cool. So you, you say the the instinct that it's instinctual to shake it off. So what are we as men not doing? What what instinct are we ignoring to 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 release? Well, that that's a that's a good question. So the variable that needs to be there to shake it off is you have to feel safe, hmm. and that's one of the secrets of our groups is if all of us, we're not going to probably, you know, slow down or, or shake it off or be vulnerable, which are all sort of the same thing, unless we feel safe. And so we have ways of doing it with our groups, with, you know, certain agreements and all. Uh, and so a guy will start to go into that response and then he's encouraged to, you know, sort of go with it, feel it, ex- experience it, share it. And he can do that because he knows that the other guys, even in a virtual group, are there to watch him. Because five minutes earlier, they saw he saw it with another guy. 
So his head knows it and he's willing to trust his emotions and physiology to, to take that risk. And he takes a risk of, of being vulnerable or just being more uncomfortable than he's been in a long time. Or in other words, to stay with that experience and doing either one of those will downregulate that stress response. And it will take a little of that away. So next time he's a little more resilient. Did you have personal experiences that, that made you such a fan of, of men's groups? Yeah. I mean, the first group wasn't, but the second group, I just saw that, you know, when guys are committed and they're vulnerable, really a lot happens and you really have that safe environment. And one of the things that happens in these, you know, safe groups is that guys get to not only witness other guys, but they get to try new things that they can't any other place. And one of the things I've said for years is, you know, you don't sleep with those guys, you don't work with those guys. So you don't really have other relationships with them generally. So, there's nothing more, nothing at risk other than your own maybe ego or whatever that is in yourself to, to take a risk with these other men. And, and that is often what tilts the scale for these guys changing because we are getting more and more therapists joining our, our membership and a lot more men and women therapists sending us guys because they realize, and, and Dolly or my partner is probably the biggest fan that a lot of these guys, what they just need, is not so much therapy, but just to learn that skill that we're talking about. Right, right. I get, yeah, when, when there's a group of men and their only role in your life is to encourage you to take a risk and to, and to hold you and make you feel safe and not judge you for taking that risk, like that, that makes it easier. Yeah, and, it's, and, and that is instinctual. You know, we're tribal and, and men, you know, traditionally go out on warring parties. They go out and they hang out and they, they do some. And so another thing that, works for men. And one reason these groups work is guys orient around an activity. Women can just hang out, drop in and be vulnerable. And they just do that. Yeah, I guess technically guys can do that. But we do better at connecting with guys when we're doing it in or around something else. So we create, you know, a set of agreements that these guys agree on, and some protocols, and it gives them the structure that guys need. And then the other part that happens is guys are competitive. And we see it in our trainings and we see it in its groups. It's like you and I are going and Joe next to us bumps it up a level and he gets really vulnerable. And then I'm going, hell, I'm not going to let Joe beat me. I'm going to be more vulnerable. And pretty soon, you know, and I've seen this in so many groups and trainings is you go around the circle. There might be 50 guys in the circle and it just gets deeper and deeper. And every, not every guy, but more and more of the guys just take, more more risk because one they know it's safe and two it's like you know if he did it i can do it even better yeah yeah i love i've experienced that too and it's neat that our our natural competitiveness can be used to uh support us in each other as opposed to to denigrate or you know someone doesn't win by you know winning the group somehow but it makes all of us up our game and and using it to help right us. and then when that what happens and you've probably seen this and the, the other guys start complimenting or honoring you for your risk which is the opposite of how we were brought up. You know, right. it's, it's they put you down, they tease you, you know, you're not mad enough, but now you take a risk, you share your shame and guys are like in tears or they're honoring you about, you know, the courage it took to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I keep saying more and more that authenticity and vulnerability are really superpowers that not enough men are taking advantage of. But again, when, when you display that, yeah, it, it, it gets rewarded. Like, you know, I learned this over years. Every time I was authentic in some public video or speaking engagement, the, the more risk I took, 
the more feedback, the more, the more connect with people. I just kept getting reinforced that, the, you know, I, I'm discovering I can't overshare that that's not a thing. But people want that connection and, and the conduit for connection is vulnerability. And we grow up in a culture that's very mental. So we think it's a lot of things. But the vulnerability creates a physical response, which is we relax. Because when you're vulnerable, you're telling me on an unconscious physiological level that the space is safe, mm. that I can relax. Because if you, if you take the risk first, you're proving that you're safe and the space is safe. So what, what was the, uh, the main mission behind the founding of Every Man to begin with? Well, you know, we said, and it still is, to, to put a, a million men into groups. So that's the sort of the, the tagline. But really what it is, is, is to bring this technology to men through peer-to-peer support. And what I've found or we found is that you give the guy, these guys the right kind of skills with a little practice, they will implement, implement it themselves in their groups. And then without any real effort, it'll just naturally generalize into the rest of their lives. It, it's, it's like... When you give someone a, a nutrient that they've been deprived of, and the body just sort of relaxes, it starts to heal itself, it starts to get strong because it's getting what it's always needed. It may be the person was sick, but really they were just nutritionally deprived. And, and that's often what happens to men. We are emotionally deprived mm. and deprived for connection. And did you have to change any of the practices, the trainings going from in-person events to virtual um, not really. Huh? We changed the delivery of them, but um, th- th- certainly the essence are the same. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we're shortening things and making it tighter. And, and sort of like you said, with podcasts, everyone's going with COVID, you know, everything keeps moving to shorter and tighter. Yeah. Uh, but the core principles and, and how we apply them are, continue to be the same. And we've talked about this a little bit, but is is there anything we haven't touched on that that makes being in a group of men so beneficial? We sort of touched on the loneliness. I mean, guys are isolated, and you know, and the, we know this, and the research supports as as the average guy in this culture gets older, he's more and more isolated. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing the bump of that significantly for men with COVID. You know, in terms of suicide, drug addiction, all that, all the indices are getting worse. And this is the antidote for isolation. And and the research also supports that the cause of addiction is disconnection. So we get guys that are recovering addicts and they go, okay, I'm not an addict anymore. I'm not an alcoholic, but I want to work on really what got me to do that. Because that was a a coping mechanism, which wasn't too healthy. So I'm, I'm not doing that. But where's the cause? And the cause in some form always lies in their ability or disability and around connection. And often, I would suspect 100% of the time, but certainly seems like often it was precipitated by some kind of trauma. So in in someone reaching for something that becomes an an addiction, is that more of a flight response or is that a stuck response or... Um, That's a good question. It's probably more the freeze response. I mean, I imagine what happens is that we freeze or we disassociate when it's too much for us. And when that's not working, we can't disassociate enough for us. We go find another behavior or substance that will take us even further away. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. So if I can't I mean, get away from this farther enough on my own. Because feeling the pain of cutting is better than feeling the emotional angst, uh, angst about whatever they're struggling with. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So if I don't even want to feel the fight, the flight or the freeze, I'll quickly turn to a substance to make me or attempt to make me forget all about it. But and it does. But the for toll, a yeah. But I mean, the toll yeah. still matters. The, the experience is still there. Exactly. It just yeah. it always comes back and it, and it just festers. It grows. But what we found and, you know, you know the, the new studies are finding is that when you put these people, in this case, men together in an authentic way and you, you know, say space, give them little skills and you just let them go at their own pace, they'll start to naturally connect because that's still in us. Hmm. And when when we get the connection and in a secure attachment or relationship, um, the need for those addictions significantly goes away. So did every man begin as strictly live kind of retreat weekends? Yeah, we started with a retreat weekends. We have a couple of different kinds of retreats or trainings we do. Uh, and then we, we knew it would happen. It did. These guys would have this experience in their weekends. We, most of them were like virgins. They never had anything like that. They go, well, I want more. What's next? What's more? And we'd say, get in the group. And we would help them with the group. So we probably before COVID, we'd had a good hundred or more groups around the world. Huh live groups. Um, and these groups would, you know, transform these guys' lives. And, and, and these groups got written up in these, you know, magazines and, you know, newspapers like the New York Times, because, you know, they were providing for men what they never had as at least adults. Do you expect and do you hope to return to live in-person events again someday? We do. We do. We do. Um, like everyone, I think we expected it to be sooner rather than later. Uh, but on the other hand, it's given us time to really develop the um, the virtual world of of this work, mm-hmm. and and that's always going to exist, which is great f- for every man and really for men too. But it, you know, we get men that really want to go to the live events. Some that bend, they want to, you know, another one, and others that you know connect with us and and just imagine what it would be like to be with these guys in, in the real space. Yeah, cool. And in the in your introduction, you mentioned the uh, I mentioned the documentary about men. Can you tell me some more about that? Yeah, that was a film that was done several years ago about our group using our group as an example of not only what could happen in a men's group, but the technology that. At that time, it was just me developing, uh, which later became um, every man. And so it was really a, about the group and, and a few guys in the group and, and what the group had done for them and, and also them and their relationships. What are some of the biggest transformations that, that you have seen from, from guys going uh, through uh, a live event or working through the, the groups on an ongoing basis? Well, we have guys, one of them was on the film that said, if it wasn't for a group, he would have been dead. So that's, that's a pretty strong uh, observation. We got a few guys like that in our groups here in my small town. Um, men of you know, transform relationships, because probably the biggest reason guys join a group or every man is in some way they're struggling in a relationship. And, you know, again, a core relationship is an ability to connect. And they learn that experientially in a group. And then in most cases, that relationship transforms for the better. Sometimes it ends. But if it ends, it always ends on a good note. Mm. 
But we had guys that started like my group here that were sure that they were going to get divorced, but they needed support for the divorce. Three years later, they got a marriage that's better than they could have imagined. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it took work, work on his part, which then catalyzed that woman to do some of her work. And then together, you know, they transformed the marriage. Yeah, because for so many people, it's like confronted with work. Oh, well, that seems difficult, hard. I guess, you know, a divorce is easier. I'll just do that. Like pe- people don't, or I shouldn't say people, some people uh, aren't willing to, to get over the hurdle. They think the hurdle means the end. Right. And, and, it, and part of it is because they don't know how they could get support. They don't often see people that go through this process and come out better, uh, you, you know, and for a lot of guys, they think the only solution is therapy and older guys are real resistant. Younger guys are more open to that. And, and well, my friends, including Dolly and my partner, seeing that like her practice, you'll get nine people a day calling up to be your client. Hmm. I mean, she, I mean, it's just, she always had a big practice, but it's exploding. And all, a lot of these top therapists are having the same problem because these guys with COVID and everything else are saying, all right, I'm willing to do the work. I have to. Yeah. And, and so that often just drives it. And, and, but once with the right support and the training or retraining, you know, almost anyone can learn this. What's, what's the average time frame? Right? Like to, we talk about training or retraining, like what, how long does it take for the average guy to, to learn these techniques? I mean, to probably six months, sometimes sooner, sometimes longer, but I would say for most guys, if they're showing up, you know, with, with the every man stuff in their group every week, and they stick with it. And it, at some point, it sort of gets rough. It's like getting in shape physically, mm-hmm. but they stick with it. They're, you know, in six months, they're generally going to be on the other side of it. Now, they can keep improving it, but generally speaking, usually after six months, you know, the problem, it's either not a problem anymore. Now it's something that, you know, they're enhancing or it's finished. Like they finally realized that. You know, if we're together, that it's just not going to work. But I'm not pissed at anymore because I'm I'm not seeing myself as a victim. Mm. And so when that shifts in the man, his whole attitude to that relationship shifts. And then even if he does end it, you know, he's probably not going to be angry, and it's going to be a lot more more of a friendly divorce. Is is there any aspect of the everyman training of of your protocols that that you can share here and now to give someone uh, yeah, a, a bit of yeah. an experience. I mean, well, a, a simple one I created a while ago and pretty much everything I created, I just created out of observing mm. what we were doing, what was working. And uh, we created uh, the every man method, which is 13 steps, but I won't go into that. Uh, but what I'll give you is what we call the rock formula, R O C. And Men, women are using this and they're you know, using it in relationships, using it in a business, using it in sales. So the R is to relax. You slow down to relax. Say it that way. You slow down to relax. You're slowing down your mind. You're slowing down your physiology. You're connected to your body because you, nothing else can happen unless you slow down. And slowing down puts you in a, a safer physiology and hopefully a, a safer space. So that's the first thing. The next one is you open up to be vulnerable. You open up to your own experience as you slow down. You know, what am I feeling physically? What am I feeling emotionally? Oh, I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling scared. Okay, where do I feel in my body? Oh, my gut, my heart. Great. Third one, C, is to reach out and connect. 
And so from that place of slowing down and being open and vulnerable, I reach out and connect. I take a risk. You know, I might say, uh, you know, when you said that thing about your wife and, you know, it really moved me, you know, and, that, you know, and as I'm speaking, I'm, you know, I'm, tears are coming down my eyes because I'm letting myself feel my sadness and I'm speaking and moving that emotional energy at the same time, which is something new for a lot of guys. So that's ROC. That's something that I believe is instinctual for us, but we've unlearned and, and with a little practice, we can learn it. Yeah. Yeah. Too many people have been told, you know, got to speed up, got to hurry up. If you're not getting things done, just quicken your pace. And like, yeah, no, that's. Because um, part of the the way that I choose to see COVID is, you know, uh, a bit of blessing of giving everyone more time, the opportunity to focus on what's, what's out of sync. And But if you just keep trying to speed up and I want to get back to the old normal as soon as I can, you're kind of missing this chance to, to slow down, to be vulnerable and to connect. Yeah. And just to take that a little further, because if you're sped up, you're, you're probably in a stress response or survival response. If you're not... You're going to be pretty soon. If you're just going fast, it, it just sees a whole physiology to go into that phase. And so when I'm sped up, I'm disconnected. And my, you know, Dolly or my partner or whoever is probably not going to be connected to me. In your book, Grow Up, is, is that sharing some of these same techniques? Is this all rooted in all of your, your kind of research and discoveries over the years? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Oh, is that totally different? <laughs> so, the Grow Up book is nine sort of phases or steps of how we grow up as a man from a boy, you know, to, you know, an elder or whatever. And what happens and what I noticed there is because of one of two reasons, usually stress or trauma or because of the culture or the environment we were in, we skipped a phase. So if we skipped a phase, it's like skipping a grade. And it's like in that grade or that class, you didn't get to learn some. So you didn't get to learn math. So imagine going through life without knowing math. It'd be a struggle. So the purpose of the book is sort of lay that out and say to guys, all right, where did you skip over? But no fault of your own, but where did you skip over? And these are the things you can do to sort of go back and fill that gap so that that gap does not become a hole that you keep falling into. So it, it's, and is it full of, is the book take you through the processes of, of filling in those gaps? It's not just. Yeah, I give, I give suggestions yeah. and cues and exercises for each of those stages on how you can, you know, go back and sort of do things to, to fill it in. Because again, you might've gone through the phase, but because you were disassociated in stress or trauma, you really didn't experience it. Or, you, you didn't have mentors or parents that, you know, loved you, connected with you, modeled for you what you needed. So again, for no fault of your own, you didn't get that new critical nutrient or that education you needed. And ever since then, you keep struggling. You wonder why. Well, it's just because you didn't get those things. Hmm. All this talk of, of childhood trauma, growing up with stress, does anybody grow up without trauma? Uh Yes, in theory, but probably <laughs> very few in this culture. Yeah. I think um, where I've seen and from what I read, it, it's more likely in the more primitive cultures where they're, you know, they're more tribal, they're more nature-based, they're more connected to everything, to nature, to themselves, to their family, to their community. And so, again, it, it's not that you don't have trauma. That's part of it. But you can have trauma 
just like that deer that gets taken down. He can have trauma, but really, is that trauma going to be PTSD trauma that keeps taking us out? And so if, if you have trauma and you've got a really good community, you can be you know, like the deer. You can cycle through that physiology and emotions pretty easily and quickly and never have trauma. Uh, like the Greeks and I think the Romans, you know, they'd go fight the wars and the guys would come back and they'd send the warriors to sacred prostitutes to, to how, get them back in their body, get rid of the trauma. I mean, there's a lot of ways to do that. You know, uh, Aboriginal societies would do ceremonies, uh, a sweat lodge, a, I mean, a lot of ways to sort of slow them down, slow the physiology down, get them connected to nature, to themselves, to their tribe. And when that would happen, particularly if it would happen soon, there'd be no PTSD. Yes, they had trauma, but it's not traumatizing. Mm. But so... T- Today, in our current Western world, we all experience trauma. Very few of us experience ways to deal with that healthily while after it or during it. So it's almost like if you've made it to adulthood, you have a lot of childhood trauma. Probably, yeah. And, and, and for some people, the biggest trauma they have was what the, the, like the emotional focus therapist would call insecure attachment. And so maybe I didn't have any trauma or any stress in my life, but if my parents weren't emotionally available, at least 30% of the time, uh, that's going to be traumatic for me because I, on an unconscious emotional level and ultimately physiological level, I don't, if you're my father, I don't feel that you're there for me. Even though I have a roof over my head, you, you know, you're not an alcoholic, you're not beating me, but you just checked out for your own reasons. And so I can't connect to you and you're not connecting to me. So that has my nervous system always be on guard, right. on guard. And I'm in some level scared and I'm compensating for that. So a child will compensate for that. It will, and one of the ways, you know, if I'm the kid, I'm going to compensate for it is I'm going to make it about myself. The reason we don't have a connection because I'm bad. And then that turns into shame. And then, you know, and then I deal with it in coping ways that ultimately don't work. Right. You know, I think that it's important to realize um, for someone that maybe wants to call something trauma only if it was some, you know, emotional, physical, sexual abuse. And if they didn't have that, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm fine. But, and you might be, but it can be just that that father wound of the absent father, physically absent or emotionally not there or the mother, anything like that. So uh, uh, a trauma can be the absence of something, too. So you don't even realize. Exactly. And, and we don't, you know, and we don't think about it. We think a trauma is like a brunt, blunt force trauma. And it's certainly that there are a rape. But what I found is a lot of those little micro traumas can ultimately be more severe than a major trauma in one way, because when you have major trauma, you know, you have major trauma. So, you know, you don't shame yourself. Like, you know, I was raped. I was there. So yes, it was bad, but you, you can put it on something. But when you think you had a great childhood, but your parents were disconnected and you wonder why none of your relationships are working out and you know, you're struggling, you're blaming yourself and, and you don't know where to go for help. Yeah. Right. And, and, recognizing trauma doesn't mean you have to blame. No one has to be the bad guy right. to have experienced exactly. trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so um, a couple of weeks ago, we did a, one of these global calls with three guys or two guys and a woman, uh, Alder Jackson, who um, was in the film, the work. He was a black man and, you know, he's, he got out of, 
prison because of that. Uh, brilliant guy, huge heart. Corey uh, McCarthy, who's one of our guys, another felon that runs a construction, owns a construction company in Buffalo, New York. And then Fritzy, who's doing an amazing documentary film about trauma. Have you seen that? Yeah. The trailer for that film about trauma in prison. Yeah. And just trailer had me in tears. Yeah. And so the three of them were on talking about trauma and, you know, how every one of these prisoners, that's why they were there. They were, every one of them was traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. And so what happened was hearing that opened up this whole big discussion in, in our membership because guys realized that first, yeah, a lot of them had trauma. And then it went to this other level of, well, maybe I didn't have the trauma that you had or you had, but really when I stepped back, I had a lot of these micro traumas mm. and, and in either case, what it does is it takes the shame away. And, and he goes, yeah, you know, it happened to me. I didn't do it to myself. It's not my fault. I was a victim. Now the, the, the shift is going from being the victim to being, or to being, you know, victimized and being a victim. And you, you know, you always have the history of being victimized, but having that, perspective of life of being the victim is where it sh- where the shift happens where mm-hmm. where what a victim doesn't do is he or she doesn't fight or flight because when you're when I'm a victim I'm powerless and so so if someone attacks me and I go into the freeze response and I don't do anything c- coming out of it I might have a lot of shame like I'm a weak man because I didn't fight back or at least I didn't run away. And so I have all this shame about how I didn't perform. Well, really, my physiology took over. It saved my life. But I have all this shame. And so I keep seeing myself as a victim. And so this is where you know, a particular part of our work comes in, is that we don't usually explain this to guys until at the end of it. So I'm working with you. That's, so that, that's something that's happened to you. And so... I get you to feel the experience of being a victim. And we don't even label it as that, but the fear, the frozenness. And then as you feel it, I slowly have you take action. But as you keep feeling the fear, for example. And so the, the amazing thing that happens is when you take action, as you feel the fear or whatever other emotion that was anchored in there, it starts to dissolve away. You stop being a victim. Because it's like you're, you, that's how you get out of that PTSD or freeze response. Because what happens is guys can take action, but so often they take action from a dis- disconnected place. And so you get a lot of guys that say doing extreme sports and they keep doing more extreme stuff because they keep raising the bar because they just need to do more to feel more. And so often they're disassociated where if you really feel a lot, and you take a literal action, that's intense. And so we work with guys staying in their body, staying in the moment, staying in their feelings, and just take a little action. And the first action might be saying no. Because if I was traumatized, raped, or whatever, I couldn't say no or act out a no. I couldn't defend my boundaries. I succumbed to it. And then I laid all that shame on myself. Yeah, it's like... Um if someone is a victim for a moment, for a circumstance, for some event, we have a way of replaying it, staying there and making ourselves a victim for the rest of our life. 
exactly. it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. And it's not, it's not meant to be that way. And the culture does that. Yeah. In so many ways, as you know, particularly to men. Yeah. And we harm each other that way. And it was beautiful seeing the little documentary trailer and talking to these people, these, you know, two ex felons and Fitzgerald about how, you know, these prisoners would get in their own circles and start getting honest and vulnerable. And they start, they hear one guy's story and that clicks something in them. And then another guy, and pretty soon they created this community of support rather than adversarial positioning. They were all supporting each other. Right. Almost that, that competitiveness kicks in and they want to show that exactly. I can be vulnerable too. Like we talked and these about, guys, you know, some of these guys, you're going to be in prison for the rest of their life, yeah. Yeah. but you know, they're making a choice to not be the victim in prison, but you know, be their own man and support other men doing the same. Cool. Awesome. So uh, what's the best way for people to learn more about every, every man? Uh, go to everyman.com and the second E's missing. So it's E-V-R-Y-M-E-N.com. So it's everyman.com. Um, we're in the process of changing our website, uh, but on the top, someplace it's going to be signing up to, to come to one of our global calls. And the last global call every Tuesday night of, of the month is a co-ed one. Okay. But the rest of them are for men. And it's 75 minutes. So that's a really great introduction. We'll have anywhere from 50 to maybe over 200 guys on the call from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Different key you know, speakers. We've had some pretty um, well-known speakers on. And then they can do a free drop-in groups, which are uh, 60 minutes. Uh, and then, you know, you can join the, uh, the membership and get more and get put into a group. Cool. So when, let's see, when a new normal arises and you can have in-person events again, uh, do you anticipate keeping all of your virtual offerings and bringing back the in-person things? Or Yeah, we, we yeah. will continue with the virtual and we're developing some more virtual yeah. and we'll probably use some of the virtual supplement the uh, live. One of the things I did a, over a year ago was a seven month uh, certification training. Uh, and so it was part virtual and part live. And so for, we'll, we'll continue to do that kind of stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate everything that you've, that you've learned and shared over your entire career, not, not just <laughs> today in this episode. Um, Cause again, it's just such uh, that this work is so needed and it does seem to me that more and more men are taking advantage and are, and are willing to be vulnerable, willing and wanting to, to heal, to Im- improve their, their outlook, their, their happiness, their joy, their meaning in life. So are you seeing that too? Yeah. I mean, I've been in it for decades and just in the last few years, it's like an exponential growth for, I think, a few reasons. Another one is now COVID. And, and I just love working with guys and, you know, we're getting more and more guys, just word of mouth. We haven't really marketed the, uh, the membership yet and friends are telling friends because you're right guys are hungry for this and you just give them the simple tools that work and they'll do it on their own yeah awesome awesome so yeah um visit realmenfeel.org and the show notes will have links to every man if you haven't captured it uh and and missing that that second e can can be can be tricky so we'll have that it'll it'll be if you're watching the video you're seeing it now if if not you just visit the website we'll uh we'll get you links and, and more info and uh yeah, I, I, Marcus, again, thanks. Um, I don't want to wait two years in between talking to you the next time. <laughs> well, you know, come and join us in Everyman. Um, yeah. uh, love to have you. And um, 
Yeah, thank you for what you're doing. And really, thank you for supporting these men and being a messenger to them. Cool. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's not something I imagined growing up at all. Um, but yeah, the, I, I, I'm sure you find this too. Uh, a way that I heal and grow is by being of service. And that's yeah. not something that anyone told me growing up. No one ever stumbled into I that. I never, that's... never would have thought I'd be doing this. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, here's to more people doing what they never thought they'd do. <laughs> I think that's what's needed because, again, we've been taught such a constricted, limited version of what we can be, and, it, and it's not true. Right. Beautiful. All right. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Marcus. And uh, until next, everyone, take good care of yourself. Be good to each other. Uh, check out realmenfield.org slash gift for that free PDF. Get on the newsletter. Uh, get up-to-date information about upcoming guests, past guests. Be behind the scenes and be good to yourself. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Contact us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about author, coach, and healer Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would help us greatly if you gave a review wherever you are listening right now. It takes less than a minute and helps other people discover Real Men Feel.